I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. So lovely to see you. Likewise. Absolutely. What have you been doing in the time between now and, and when we last met? Well, it's been a busy, productive, and really inspiring time. Some of the highlights include a few trips to Palo Alto recently for various different workshops and events. But two weeks ago, we had the NIAC hearing uh, where we had uh, public convenings for each of our five working groups. And it was really, really a pleasure to hear the experts they pulled to talk about each of the areas that they're focused on and learn from people from around the world who are leading in this space uh, and hear the insights, the very, very deep insights of our members. Uh, So that was Good fun and nice to see people in person um, as well as those joined us on hybrid. And today, as you know, is a big day. We will launch our third cohort of the badge program on responsible AI, which started off as an experiment. And now uh, we've got several companies who are uh, sending their third round of, of executives, and we have many new companies of all different markets, wireless providers, telecom, beverage providers uh, across the globe. It'll be a really fun group. And we thought of a lot of new ways to support the group, uh, including an in-person meeting that we're going to be hosting in DC in April. So very excited about what we're about to do today. I'll look forward to joining the in-person meeting in April, but I want to find out what you did at NIAC in Palo Alto. Is there a way of me doing that? Absolutely. We are posted on YouTube. Uh, We have a NIAC website, and you can also just search on um, Google or on YouTube for NIAC and AIAC, and you can see our field hearings from This month, you can also see the hearings from uh, May when we were launched, uh, as well as the minutes that are online. That's wonderful. Great resource for everybody. And I am about to set out to various places, but amongst others, the United Arab Emirates, where we are holding the second annual Mock Toy Awards at the Dubai Future Foundation on the 20th of November. So I hope everybody will look out for that because it's about the time of year when you might be thinking about buying a smart toy for your child. And so you'll be able to make sure that you buy the best in class in terms of responsible AI after that event. Well, that is so exciting and so well-timed. Thank you. And speaking of exciting, I'm really looking forward to hearing from today's guests whose AI goes from uh, surveying the sea floor to the outer reaches of space. Not too many people or companies can say that their work impacts those spaces and everywhere in between. We'll be hearing from Carl Hahn of Northrop Grumman, and I'm looking forward to it. So let's jump in. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of In AI We Trust. Today we are so pleased to be joined by Carl Hahn, Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer at Northrop Grumman, one of the world's largest military technology providers. Before this role, 
Carl spent 16 years at IBM where he held various roles from compliance officer to associate general counsel, trust and compliance officer for the Americas and Europe. Carl, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you. I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Well, let's start with you. Tell us your path to this really important, exciting work. How did you become interested in AI and why responsible AI in particular? Sure. And, you know, first of all, I just want to really congratulate both of you for hosting this great podcast. I've so enjoyed listening to the many episodes and I feel quite privileged to join uh, the list of all the guests you brought on from all places and aspects of, of responsible artificial intelligence. Uh, but let me talk a little bit about the origin story, and it dates to the beginning of the pandemic, um, when I became aware of the work that the Defense Innovation Board was doing under the auspices of the U.S. Department of Defense. And that board was led by, um, by Eric Schmidt, um, formerly the chairman of, of Google, and was comprised of leading thought leaders from industry, from academia, across the board. And one of the specific task areas was responsible artificial intelligence. Out of that came the five DOD uh, ethical principles, um, which we'll talk about some more today. And those principles are ultimately adopted by, by the Department of Defense and really are down an implementation path now. So I became aware of this work. And I took a look at this and I said, first of all, you know, we're a company who our number one value is do the right thing. And we mean that sincerely. We ask ourselves this question often when we're having leadership conversations. So this is a really good fit for us. It's a really fantastic way to support the customers and their mission. And it's a way to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace when we're delivering these incredibly complex and very important AI solutions to support global and national security, both here in the US and with our allies worldwide. I think we understood very early that this is not a technology question by itself, cannot be viewed just as software running against math. It is cross-functional. So there's legal issues, there's policy issues, there's political issues, there's communications issues, and there are a lot of engineering issues and data issues. So we took that approach very early, and that's where, where I think we've been working hard over the last couple of years to hopefully make a difference. Thank you, Carl. So you told us a little bit about why it's important at Northrop Grumman to prioritize responsible AI, but can you tell us a little bit about the myriad of places I'm assuming that AI is actually used? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really interesting as we look at the, the national and, and the global security space, um, and as you talk to our customers and they talk to us things about things like, you know, JADC2, which is, you know, joint all, all domain command and control. So where our customer set is going and it's an evolution and it's hard and it's not easy, but it is toward data centric enterprise. I mean, that has been a direction from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So if you look at data centric enterprise and you want to integrate capability across what is referred to in the military space as the kill chain, right? We're responding to attacks and threats. You need to integrate from the outer reaches of space all the way to the sea floor. And we're one of the companies that frankly has capability across that entire scope. We have folks mapping the sea floor using AI and algorithms. And we have what's behind me, the James Webb Space Telescope, 1.2 million miles from Earth. Also, you can, you can imagine that there's plenty of use cases for AI and algorithms based on the huge amount of data being sucked up by that platform. Everything in between is like using space assets to deliver information, the platforms that are responding to threats, all of that 
there are so many different ways that you could use AI. We're not involved in all of it, but we're going to be, and our competitors and others in this industry will be involved in everything from how do you, you know, create big data sets? How do you get command control and intelligence to assets in the field? How do you do things that sound boring, but are actually really, really important, like logistics, make sure that everything gets to where it needs to go when it needs to get there. Maintenance, right? Just having aircraft flying more often and being ready to deploy is an enormous issue. So predictive maintenance, you know, we can get better, smarter, faster at figuring out when something is ready to go or when it's gonna have a maintenance issue or when it needs to be serviced. We're working with DARPA on various projects. We've announced publicly, you know, we're working on, you know, um, AI that's associated with rotary craft headsets. You know, there's, there's plenty of work going on about, um, you know, autonomous vehicles. And I think the aerospace space itself is going to be tremendously interesting as, as, we, as we move through the next evolution of how we're doing defense in the modern world. Wow, uh, I'm fired up. <laughs> that was quite a list. I know that was the tip of the iceberg of it is. some it of is. the things. And um, I'm, I'm just so excited for what you're working on. It just leaves me wanting to know more and, and thinking how fortunate you are uh, to be dealing with such cutting edge issues, both so important, so timely, and um, so novel. You referenced earlier the DOD ethical AI principles. These were issued in 2020 and followed by the Defense Innovation Unit AI guidelines. They articulated several goals of those guidelines, including accelerating programs from the outset by clarifying end goals, alignment of expectations, acknowledgement of risks and trade-offs, such a solid foundation and acknowledgement of both the importance of setting the ground rules so that you can have acceleration so that you can point to increase the confidence that AI systems are developed, tested, and vetted with the highest standards of fairness, accountability, and transparency. You know, all of this really coming down to trust. So tell us a little bit about your work with the principles and the guidelines. How do they affect some of those really important projects that you were telling us about and, and those of your colleagues in the defense space, uh, what kind of impact have they had on your approach to your work? And do you wish there was something more now that they are in the wild? Is there something you more you wish they'd said less? What would you hope for in a future iteration? That is such a great question. I mean, I think first and foremost, the uh, DOD principles really inform us and animate how we look at the issue. I mean, from our perspective, they are in effect our responsible AI policy. And I would add on to those, the intelligence community, which is also a hugely important customer to us. It's the one we don't get to talk about, but it's it's a significant chunk of our business also has their own um, ethical AI principles. And I commend them to your listeners reading. Um, you know, they are very forward leaning and they also emphasize uh, quite explicitly civil rights, privacy in, in the role of humans in, in these solutions. But to go back to your your question, um, we do we do use them as as our as the foundation from which we look at how we are assessing how we are going to implement, develop, and deploy um, artificial intelligence solutions. But they're very broad, right? So what I really appreciated, and we'll talk about this, was the strategy and implementation pathway document that was released by the Department of Defense in this year, in in June. That I think is the next iteration, is the next leveling up. I don't know that I would say that they should have done something different, but here's what I'd like to see them do going forward. We need to maintain the energy behind the implementation of responsible AI. So the Deputy Secretary of Defense's implementation pathway 
was explicit that it applied to all DOD components. That's everybody. That's all of it. There are no exceptions. Nobody gets an opt-out on responsible artificial intelligence, point one. Point two, it was very intentional about the data, about the challenges with the data question, but also very explicit that this needs to be reflected in acquisitions. Now, government contracts is a very unique space. It is very interesting dynamic. The customers come out with requirements, they put them in RFPs, they put them out for competition, contractors respond. We're gonna give you this, 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 or the other thing in response to your requirement. If responsible artificial intelligence is not in the acquisition, it's just kind of a suggestion. If it is in the acquisition, it's a requirement. And I work with engineers every single day and their first question most of the time is, what's the requirement? So if this is a requirement and it needs to be specific, um, I think we've, you could take the approach of yes or no, will you comply with the ethical principles of, of the DOD ethical principles? And contractors are gonna answer, yes, of course, we do the right thing, we're ethical. But what does that mean, right? So if I'm doing an AI um, solution involving a large data set, there should be questions. What is the data? Where did the data come from? What is the provenance of the data? What is the quality of that data? They should maybe ask a question about bias in the data if there's an issue with that as being a potential unintended consequence. They should ask questions about how are you going to explain your AI? How are you going to trace it? How are you going to govern it? How are you going to deal with the cyber threats to it? All these things are very legitimate and I think would be utterly reasonable for the department to test during an acquisition because ultimately we need to help our customers be able to explain what they've done and why they've done it. And they have to persuade a broader community that this is safe, reasonable and beneficial to use. I mean, you got to start with the warfighters themselves. The people in the field have to trust the AI so that they actually use it. When it tells them things, how are they supposed to respond? And what it, what it, what can it do and what it can't do? That's an incredibly important community. You know, our defense community is literally millions of people, millions of people out there in fields, in the mud, in the sky, the bottom of the ocean. They, I mean, that group is going to be like, what are you doing? Why should I pay attention to this? And why is it better? The second very important constituency is policymakers, right? There's Congress, there's appropriations committees, there's subcommittees that want to get into this and I'll ask you all kinds of questions, particularly if something goes sideways. You know, the, the telescope behind me is a huge success now. A couple of years ago, people were testifying on the Hill as to why is it behind schedule and over budget, right? So, you know, there's a lot of different considerations here. And then finally, there's the public. The public at large, who's paying for this capability through taxpayer dollars, also needs to be persuaded. We need a narrative that this is for benefit of humanity. It is for the benefit of our nation's security. It is for the benefit of our world security. And here's how we're dealing with that in a responsible way. And here's how we're addressing even when things go, if there's possible consequences or, or things we need to understand about AI that, that we are managing. Well, I can be more pleased to hear you talk about all those different groups of people who have to have trust in the AI that you're creating and that it is responsible. As many people know, my daughter is a pilot in the US Air Force. And oh, so um, I, could, I couldn't want you to have trustworthy, responsible AI more. So we talked about the DOD principles and the DIU guidelines. Are there any other guidelines or frameworks that you're taking into account at Northrop Grumman? And do you have your own governor, AI governance procedures? If so, what are those standards? Are they based on legal considerations, corporate value, other foundational sources, or some of all? 
<laughs> right. I mean, that's a really insightful question. There are so many sets of principles out there and so many frameworks. It is, I think Harvard did a, did a grid and it, there's a whole, many, many dots um, on that. So it's, it can, it, this is a space where, you know, guidance of, of people like you, you know, thought leaders like UK and Miriam are so helpful, right? In terms of helping us understand what we should be focusing on most intentionally. We do look at some other, other guidelines. Um, you know, NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology is coming out with a risk management framework on the implementation of artificial intelligence. It's in draft form now. It's being commented upon by various stakeholders. That's an important document. There's a recent academic paper out of CSET, the Center for Science and Emerging Technology out of Georgetown, um, that talks about harmonizing, right? Connecting the NIST responsible AI taxonomy with the DOD principles and advocating that the two should be connected. So I, I do think that that's an important one. Um, we have the White House executive order from a couple of years ago about implementing trustworthy AI. We have the AI Bill of Rights, which the White House just announced, which I think you wrote about, Kay, I thought recently on the, on the WEF website, which I thought was a great summary. Uh, now, I mean, that's a very important development. I mean, that's not irrelevant to us. I mean, I spoke at AI World Government Conference recently, and it was emphasized by the administration um, speakers the importance of avoiding discrimination, the, the importance of avoiding bias, the importance of understanding the impact of AI in underserved communities. Now, that won't be relevant to us in a national defense space in all instances, but it is also relevant to us as a huge multi-billion dollar global company with our own internal operations, right? So when you think about all these HR applications using AI, that's gonna impact us because we just did our earnings call this morning. And it was the, the topic of getting the labor that we need to deliver the mission to our customers in this current labor market was discussed at length, right? So these things are relevant to us in different contexts, whether it's the external context or the internal context. I also think we'll talk a little bit about outside the US. I think what the EU is doing on the AI Act is going to be, it's going to be something that we need to be aware of. Whether and to what degree it applies to military applications, maybe you all can help me understand that because that seems to be a little bit of a moving target. But ultimately, what the EU does tends to have a gravitational pull on how the rest of the world looks at this, so it's not irrelevant. So if we talk about conformity testing and ranking AI solutions in different buckets of risk and taking kind of a safety and quality approach to it, that's, that's going to be meaningful for us, right? So, I mean, I would say that there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, I do think we're looking primarily to our customers to give the direction. Now, you also asked about our internal processes. I mean, I, I, would, I would say that we've imported what we're seeing from our customers as being essentially our, our policy guidance here. We are evolving our internal um, frameworks to explicitly deal with or explicitly deal with address some of these issues. Um, for example, we recently appointed a chief data officer. We now have a chief data office. Um, we have an artificial campaign within the company. We have a responsible AI working group. Um, so we are really trying to connect dots across all these functions. And we're also setting up a governance structure to deal literally with the questions posed by large data sets and how we are assembling those and collecting them and what use cases are coming up. And responsible AI will be, will be part of that process. Now, I, I will stop. It is, you know, as a compliance officer, it's awfully easy to go to more process and more committees and more boards. Um, and I do, I wonder about a group of humans sitting around the conference table and just how many use cases can you possibly look at? There could be tens of thousands of them. 
So this is where, you know, our work with Credo AI and, and others has been really, I think, incredibly interesting is how we automate and embed within the development process some of these principles. Um, because I, I can't look at them all, right? But now I'm on a roll now and I'll never stop talking, so I'm going to pause. Well, we don't want you to pause. We want you to keep going. In fact, I would love to drill a little deeper on, sure. on what you're doing, what you're seeing, picking up on a piece that Northrop Grumman published about the differences between commercial and military AI. A software engineer said that if there's a chance an algorithm could create unintended consequences, it will not make it out the door at your company. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about what you do to ensure this 100% success rate in your training, in your R&D, post-deployment. I'd also love to hear your thoughts on how much of this is applicable to civilian applications. I mean, it seems that all the, the functions you've talked about, obviously the consequences are quite high when you're talking about uh, people out in the field whose decisions will mean life or death for them and people around them. Uh, but uh, in, a, in a less life or death, but very consequential format, we know AI is used in hiring, employee evaluation, medical diagnoses, and other ways that will have tremendous impact on people's lives and opportunities. So would love to hear your thoughts a little bit more about the, the specifics of, of, of how you make these tough decisions and put these measures in place and which of those you think are defense intelligence specific or which would be broadly applicable. Yeah, so that, I mean, first of all, it was great to read that quote from the standpoint that it, it, it was from one of our uh, artificial intelligence architects and she reflected our culture like right out of the gate, right? It's like we do the right thing and if an algorithm is going to cause an unintended consequence, it doesn't get out the door. That is being the principle. And that is how we operate. I mean, we are a company known for what is sometimes called exquisite engineering and we are obsessive about getting things right, getting things perfect. I'm, you know, I keep talking about James Webb, but James Webb had over 300 single points of failure. And once it's out there, you can't do anything to it. You can't maintain it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you're, it, it, it's just a shame. So that is, and that is something that, that this company was able to achieve and it's working, right? So, you know, what I would say we're doing is we are working very actively and that's with, with companies like Credo AI and with our Dev, DevSecOps um, framework and our tools to when we are coding, when we are developing, when we are ingesting data sets and we are going to deploy algorithms to generate artificial intelligence outcomes, we are going to be incredibly intentional about a workflow, about checkpoints, about management escalation if necessary, if there's a higher risk scenarios and we are going to test and we are going to monitor and we are going to engage with our quality and mission assurance teams to, to do what we can to ensure that what we're delivering meets the customer's specifications. I might add an addendum to the statement that you read uh, because I'm an attorney by training. So when I hear 100%, I'm like, yes, okay. Is anything in life 100%? Uh, I think in this scenario, what is equally important, and this is what we'll talk a little bit about, I think when you talk about the what, what's the one thing you would do change, it's the transparency principle, right? I think we need a regime where we are very clear with the customers and with all the stakeholders I just talked about, here's what this can do. Here's what it's designed to do. Here's what we expect it to deliver. But here's also where there could be a risk, right? There's an error rate. If you're gonna do like a facial recognition software, that's gonna have an error rate. What is the error rate? I mean, and what is the bias in the data? 
all data is biased. All, I mean, we had this long conversations in the business roundtable, principles for AI, responsible AI. And, you know, there is no such thing as, as data simply reflects where data came from. And therefore, you really do have to understand that. Now, you can mitigate that with synthetic data and some other techniques. Nevertheless, no matter what you do, the data is going to influence the outcome. And you need to understand what that is, and you need to describe that. Um, I also think we need to do more work about dealing with AI accidents. You know, accidents are a part of life. Um, you know, planes have accidents. Cars are crashing. They will crash. Autonomous self-driving cars will also crash. These things will happen. AI will produce outcomes that people didn't expect. And how we describe what those could be and how we deal with the harm that may result in a fair and reasonable way that also sitting here and you know, working for a large business that also doesn't impede innovation and speed the market to deal with these huge problems we have, I think is a big challenge. And I think it's one where we could use, I'd love to see the community really engage on that so companies like ours have guidance. In terms of how this tracks the civilian work, I, I think just the discipline and the recognition that software development needs to have a quality and safety um, and effectiveness lens is something that should scale um, across the AI community. Because when you go to civilian use cases like healthcare decisions, enormously consequential. I just talked about cars, right? Cars not hitting pedestrians, not running into buildings, enormously consequential. I think at the beginning of AI, it was like, look, you know, the, the app tells you to go someplace and you can decide not, and, you know, the downsides weren't as significant, theoretically, and there wasn't maybe as much focus on the quality of the data set. And everybody was like, oh, it's cool. Let's play around with it. I think those days are over. That's my take. And I think, you know, we're very used to in the national security space, having to meet this very high standards of performance because the impact of what we're delivering is so significant. But I also think on the flip side, on our internal operations, we're going to expect our vendors to do likewise. So let me just flip the, flip the, the narrative. So if I'm doing um, a contract with a large HR provider who is giving me algorithms and telling us, oh, you, we can do all these things with respect to your 90,000 plus person workforce, I'm going to challenge them. I'm like, I don't want you just out there taking any old data off the shelf and winging it. And that's not going to work. You're going to explain to me how you're going to be responsible. That's a civilian application. If we're doing, you know, testing and financial records, how is that going to be reliable? How is that going to be accurate? And this is really a long way of saying that AI won't have credibility unless it is accurate and reliable. Because, you know, you should, we should honestly expect that when we have conversations about the outcomes from these tools, that there'll be pushback and skepticism because sometimes it's quite counterintuitive. It's like, I can't believe your tool. Who, who are you? And what is this tool? And where did this data come from? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense to me. So I, th I think having this scale into civilian space will be important um, in addition to what we're doing in the military space. In that same article, an AI systems architect at Northrop Grumman said that defense AI requires a diverse skill set beyond just software engineers to produce equitable, unbiased results throughout a product's mission life. So who do you want to have on those teams? And what efforts do you undertake to help build these diverse teams? Yeah, so I think through our, um, and I, I think this diversity point is, is, is really interesting and important and fundamental to, to, the effective, to the effective management of this issue, uh, ultimately. From our standpoint, uh, we've, we've been committed day one to having a diversity of thought in the room, um, but we're also very focused as a company on diversity of background, 
on diversity of personal attributes. That's something we've been heavily emphasizing as a, as a company looking, looking in terms of our hiring, in terms of how we're managing leadership roles, et cetera. So I think that the two come together. You know, this is, this is going to take a village. So we just had our responsible AI working group call yesterday. So we have, you know, technologists with PhDs and data scientists, uh, data science on the phone. We have AI architects. We have, we have government relations talking about what's happening in the political realm. We have communications talking about how are we, how are we messaging, not only to the external market, but also within our own company. We have the compliance and legal folks like myself talking about how are we going to turn this into policy? How are we going to turn this into governance? And how are we going to more, more effectively manage risk? So, you know, this is, this is something that we need to roll out and continue to emphasize across the company. I, I think as we evolve, this is all where the monitoring and the auditing comes in, right? So you get into a program, you look at how they're doing software development on, a, on an AI solution. Um, you look at how they're working with a, with a workflow package like Credo AI to, to basically take the principles and turn them into algorithms, turn them to help them support the math, deal with the data question. But we also need to be looking at the makeup of the teams themselves, right? And are they meeting the, the test in terms of what we want, we want for diversity? I, I do think this is going to be a continuing conversation. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, making sure that that works in a highly complex company with thousands of programs and lots of little microcultures, it's just as much a cultural issue as it is a technology issue. So, and I work culture every single day because it's never static and we have to continuously monitor it to make sure that it's tracking to where we need it to be. Well, it's great to hear your experience and your commitment. Um, as you know, Kay and I certainly share that opinion that diversity is, is a key answer here. It's interesting. We're talking about a new medium, but it comes back to the age-old principles. You can't imagine beyond what your experience uh, and creativity allows. And so your team and your products will benefit the more perspectives you bring into the baking and testing phases. So uh, really applaud your efforts there. And another diversity aspect is the international lens. And as an international company, we know you engage with clients and governments across the country, across the world. And that means you need to comply with a multitude of regulations and laws in various jurisdictions. We'd love to learn what you have as lessons learned. Are there frameworks or processes in different regions or territories that you find to be more or less effective? If you were to be speaking today to a U.S. policymaker, lawmaker, because as you know, we have several who listen, what would you advise them as to how they should clarify the playing field, how they could help you navigate, help your colleagues ensure that they're doing the right thing and asking the same of others? Yeah, so there's, there's so much going on, as you both know, and are actually leaders on across the world in this space, whether it's the Global Partnership for AI, what World Economic Forum is doing, or what Equal AI is doing. And, you know, I certainly encourage you to keep that up because we need more cross conversation. It's not an issue that's bounded by country borders. It, it, it reminds me of the cybersecurity challenge and the, and the privacy challenge, right? And I would start by urging that policymakers learn from those major efforts to deal with these huge risk buckets, right? Whether it's the safety and security of data and IT applications, whether in a private sector or in the government space. And the, and, the, and the grappling with privacy on, on people's personal and sensitive information. And, and there, you know, I think on the U.S. side, you know, I will simply note that there have been calls 
for a U.S. for a federal privacy law, as an example. And the reason for that, I mean, that, this is not a Northrop Grumman problem per se, because that's not really the core of what we do. But just taking a step back from a, from a policy and regulatory perspective, in the absence of a federal law, we have a hopscotch approach. We have California with its you know, Consumer Privacy Act. We have, Colorado, we have all the different states doing slightly different flavors on similar things. And then we have areas where there's not, we don't really, you know, there, there, there's not going to be as, as, as much guidance. I, I would say that what it would be helpful if I was talking to a US policymaker is we would appreciate and support guidance as to how we are gonna look across the government on this and across the states. Business likes consistency, business likes certainty. Business also would really welcome the opportunity to participate in what that looks like in terms of a regulatory framework. Um, I can tell you as a chief compliance officer, there's nothing more frustrating than supporting a policy goal 100% than having to execute to a regulatory framework that actually undermines it because it's just so impossible to implement. This is a real issue. And we've seen struggles with this in cybersecurity and we've seen struggles with this in terms of implementing privacy, both with laudable policy goals, um, but some very significant and highly complex implementation challenges. So the pivot on what else is going on outside the US, I mean, again, I referenced the EU AI Act um, earlier. It'll be really interesting to see what happens there. You know, I think there's a lot of question marks as to how conformity testing would be done and how it would be done in, a, in an effective, nimble and, and sort of feasible way. But, you know, that's, that's obviously something that's going to be important if we take that sort of product safety, uh, sort of nutritional label for AI approach to, to the space. On the other side, you have approaches like what Singapore has been publishing, which is much more voluntary, not driven by government regulation, but by industry self-regulation. I think you see the UK taking a more sort of middle path on that, um, less, less prescriptive, more focused on letting the businesses figure it out within, within broad parameters. I think this is gonna take some time to play out. And I think we need some experimentation and some testing and some pilots to see what will act, and here's, here's the point, here's my point. I, th I don't think anybody is arguing that we should have irresponsible, dangerous AI. I, I haven't heard nobody say that that's a good idea, right? So I think there's plenty of goodwill on all sides of the equation. So it's really a how question, right? Is the how conformity testing? Is it a European regime? Is the how some sort of you know, national or federal approach in the United States? Is the how something that's much more bifurcated and much more locally driven? You know, I just wanna stay focused on let's pick and let's try and let's look at implementing regulatory and legislative regimes that are really going to bring the collective toward the goal of being able to deliver responsible artificial intelligence that's going to engender public trust and allow the users to use it with confidence. Carl, thank you for that. And again, agreed, you know, the fragmentation that we're seeing within the United States is extremely difficult because companies are going to have to follow all these different pieces. And that means that it makes your job really difficult. But also, there is no clarification of the larger goals around responsible AI. It's been truly wonderful to have you on the show. And I always hate asking the closing question because it means that we are going to let you go. But right. before we do, we ask the same question of every guest. If you had a magic wand to achieve one wish to help us and you achieve responsible AI, 
what wish would that be? That's that's such a profound question, and I really enjoy the answers of um, your other guests to, to this to this question. And I'm I'm glad I knew it was going to be asked ahead of time, so I could actually give it some thought. You know, from my standpoint, I would I would use the word transparency, right? And and, and to me, that means several different things. Uh, I think the dialogue, the magic wand, would basically wave away silos, wave away institutional agendas get rid of bureaucratic obstacles and allow us to have a truly collaborative and effective conversation about how, like I just said, how we are going to get the goal, right? Which is responsible trusted AI that engenders public confidence and user confidence and minimizes the risk of unintended consequences that are harmful. We need full, open, honest, clear, non-punitive, non-sort of like, you know, adversarial conversation about that particularly with, with our government customers, right? Um, there has been historically some hesitance for many good reasons, right? Well, we don't wanna favor contractors. Uh, we've confidential, you know, restricted information that's not widely shared, near, need to know. Um, there's all sorts of process and procedures and regulations. There's, there's, there's anxiety about not showing favoritism. We really need to take a big, huge step back and say, there's just, they're just, I mean, and you know, I know Miriam, I'm looking so forward to your work on, on, an, on the AI advisory committee that you're doing for the president. I think that's a really good example of what exactly what I'm talking about, collaborative, cross-functional, broad-based conversations. And we need to take recommendations out of a commission like that, and then we need to actually go do them. That's what I'd like to see, right? And if we can do that, then we can evolve our conversations. And it can, you know, we're a government contractor. So ultimately it gets down to the nuts and bolts of you've got to go out to contract. You've got to put an acquisition on the street. You've got to go buy this. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that effectively? And to do that, we really need leadership and we need this transparency and we need this clarity of intent. And then when, they go, when we go out to market and we're actually doing a contract, we are having a unity and we're having a meeting of the minds that I think will actually deliver the goal. So, you know, you ask for the magic wand and there is a magic quality to everything I just said, but I, I think without, if you don't have a vision, then you've decided not to have one, right? So we need to have one. Amen opinion. and cheers to that. Yes. Um, so we will hope you do find that magic wand and that we can realize the transparency that will evaporate some of the silos, bureaucratic challenges and institutional agendas and other challenges that keep us from uh, going where we need to go at the pace we need to go there. I am confident that with your work and the work of so many others out there who are committed to these goals, we'll get much of the way there, magic wand or not. So thank you, Carl, for taking the time to talk with us today and share with us some of what you've been doing and we'll hope to hear more from you in the future. Likewise, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Okay, that was certainly another interesting episode. Uh, there's so much to take away from it. What were some of the big takeaways for you? Yeah, I mean, it was hugely interesting. And as I say, you know, important when you have a daughter in the, in the Air Force. So <laughs> key takeaways, I guess, that governments are often sort of derided for getting into the space. But what he started with was when the government came up with these guidelines, then, you know, they really started to be involved in thinking about this. And so I think that shows that when government leads in a responsible and sensible fashion, then that can move the needle. And so I particularly liked um, 
liked that. I loved the fact that he drew out all of the different stakeholders that they were serving, including citizens, because, you know, as a military company, they have lots and lots of different stakeholders. And of course, because we have done so much work on procurement, I was delighted to hear him talk about how it's really important to put responsible AI into RFPs, but also to detail it, not just say, and you must be responsible, because that doesn't necessarily create the right response. And also, you know, I've been talking for quite a long time about all companies becoming AI companies. And I thought it was really interesting the way he was, he said, you know, we've got AI in, in terms of what we're selling, but we're also buying so much AI. And so they have a real understanding that, that they're becoming that AI company. They're using it externally and internally as well. So I could go on for some time, but I want to give you an opportunity to give us some key takeaways. Well, it is true. He did give us a lot to unpack and digest. I liked hearing his basic reminder and premise that he hasn't heard a lot of people, in fact, no one who wants to create irresponsible AI in all the governments he's working with, on all the companies and across this company. That is not anyone's intent. And so what we need to do is align on the how. Um, I was a, really interested to hear about his experience and impression of government as a partner in this effort, to hear how much the DOD principles and guidelines really informed his work, really helped create a, a language and a, an opportunity for there to be consistency across his enterprise in engagements with the government and, and across companies. So it was interesting to hear how impactful those were and, and what more would be helpful, hearing that it's helpful to have clarity on how uh, one explains, traces, and governs the AI, um, how one should look for bias. And, and as you said, one of the key points he raised for the government is looking at acquisitions. I thought it was really helpful how he just summed it up. And if it's not in the acquisitions, it is not a requirement. Bottom line, it is talk and, and a lofty principle unless you're putting it where your money is. And um, so I thought that was a really important for us all to hear and to understand that while there's always going to be pushback in understanding and defining, coming to terms with what those rules and requirements are, at the end of the day, they really do need and count on civil society to support, but count on governments to align on consistent, clear standards. That's what they need because there are so many different actors involved. And that's what they need because they're engineers. They need to know what the basic requirements are. The more we translate that for them clearly, that the better and safer we all are. Uh, so just really enjoyed hearing how he interprets these principles, how they define them internally, and the very, very broad use cases within their own enterprise that, that he gets to imagine. So I'm really grateful for that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one phrase that probably should stick in our minds when we're thinking about acquisition is we need clarity of intent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kay, for another great episode. And I'm already looking forward to our next one. As am I. Take care. Take care. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify. 
Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 